Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. Joining us for season four, I'm Tracy Moore, one of the prevention coordinators with TCFE, and I'm joined today with Sam, who you all know. We're going to be introducing our guest here in a moment, but wanted to give a little content warning, too. We are going to be discussing domestic violence today and safety planning around the holidays. So if you feel like you need to take a step back or take a moment away, please feel free to do so. Come back and join us later. And thanks again for being here today. And Sam, I'm going to let you introduce our guest. Thanks for that, Tracy, and thanks for that reminder, as always, for our folks to take care of themselves. Today, we're joined by a couple of amazing people that we're so excited to have a conversation with, Tracy Stebbins and Mackenzie Van Herpen from the Grayson County Crisis Center. Tracy is the Community Education Coordinator, and Mackenzie is the Primary Prevention Coordinator, and we're so excited to be able to have a conversation with them. But first, let me pass it over to them to just give a brief introduction of them and maybe their program as well. Thank you so much, Sam and Tracy. Tracy, for having us and inviting us to be a part of your podcast. We're really excited and grateful to have our voices heard. My name is Mackenzie Van Herpen, and I'm Sam said, I'm the Premier Prevention Coordinator. I have been at the Crisis Center for 10 years now. I started in prevention, I moved to community education and the volunteer program, and lots of other random things. And I found my way back to prevention. And I, I really love a lot of the different components that we get to do in prevention and all the different ways that we get to reach out into the community, including this, our podcast. So thanks so much for having me here today. Thanks, Mackenzie. And I'm Tracy Stebbins, as Sam said, the Community Education Coordinator. I actually started out in the Anger Management Program as the facilitator and then started facilitating in our Batters Intervention Prevention Program. I now supervise both of those programs along with primary prevention and our community education and outreach I just celebrated a couple days ago, eight years at the Crisis Center. And thank you guys for having us today. Thank you both so much for joining us. And if you wouldn't mind, uh, either Tracy or Mackenzie, can you tell me a little bit about Grayson County Crisis Center and Sherman and just the area you serve in the population and the counties? Definitely. So Grayson County is located up on the north border of Texas. We border Oklahoma. I like to say that uh, we're the last stop before you get up into Oklahoma. And our service area really reaches truly anyone who shows up on our doorstep, we will serve. And as far as what's available around us, the next stop north of us isn't until Durant, Oklahoma. They have a dual agency up there. To the west of us is in Gainesville, Abigail's Arms. To the east of us, out in Fannin County, they have a domestic violence program, um, but we do serve them with our sexual assault program. So we're a dual agency. So we serve domestic violence and sexual assault victims. And so our domestic violence program, there's several around us, but sexual assault, we serve about four different counties when it comes to our, our same nurses and program. And then south of us in Plano with Hope's Door and the Turning Point would be the next closest. Our area is technically by numbers considered urban. And if you come here, no one here would tell you it's urban. We would very much consider ourselves rural. The, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very rural as far as we're concerned. So I'm not sure how those numbers work. But yeah, we're grateful that we can be of service. And I think our I'll let Tracy speak a little bit more to the numbers of Grayson County because we're we're growing. I think Grayson County is one of the fastest growing counties in the state of Texas right now. Yeah, actually, we are growing at a tremendous rate. So our population in Sherman has increased 6.89% since the 2020 census. Currently in Sherman, we have 46,912 people. And in the entire county of Grayson, we have 139,944. So we are growing at a rapid pace. 
Thank y'all for sharing a little bit more about that. I'm, I'm always curious to know the sizes and the populations that are served. I might have skipped a little bit ahead in asking for that because we normally open the podcast with a sort of icebreaker getting to know you question, and I completely bypassed it. <laughs> so sorry for that. But yeah, let's get to know each other a little bit more. And we're going to talk about some hopefully not too controversial holiday opinions here. So who can tell me, or if you want to share, what is a holiday food or dish that comes out that you're just like, nope, no, thank you. Do not want that. Do not like that. I think that should not be included in this meal. Well, definitely start. Definitely one there is going to be green bean casserole. That is absolutely no thank you. You can put that away. Is it the texture or is it green beans or is it the like mushroom sauce? I'm curious. Well, all of the above, (laughs) all of the above. Plus what it looks like. Ah. Um, so I I do not enjoy the mushiness of the green bean casserole. It does not look very promising and edible. So that would be my no thank you. It can't even surprise you with those little bits that are sprinkled on top, the little French onion bits. That's not going to change your opinion. No, absolutely not. <laughs> mine, is, mine is sweet potatoes. I, I love sweet potatoes, but... I know. I don't know what it is about the mush or not the mushrooms. I say mushrooms, the marshmallows and all of that. Like it just, I want nothing to do. I love sweet potatoes. I eat them all the time. I had them last night, but whatever that holiday dish is with the sweet potatoes and the marshmallows, I'm out. Okay. Very important clarifying question here. <laughs> okay. Because I feel very strongly about the sweet potato. <laughs> so <laughs> I do love sweet potatoes with marshmallows, big fan, but it's not your thing. That's okay. How do you feel about like a pecan streusel topping situation? Nope. Still no. Still no. I don't know. Why. <sighs> that hurts I don't my know how heart. I can be in Texas and have that feeling either. Uh, but that's okay. I'll I'll forgive you. But it's delicious. It really mm-hmm. is. I'm gonna trust you on oh, that. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. That's okay. That's not a, a that's a fan. Really? No. I love it, Samantha. So I'm with you. Thank you, Tracy. There's uh, to me, that's like my favorite part. Like I prefer that to like mashed potatoes. I prefer that to like yes, yes. Maybe you just maybe you just haven't had my mom's because that is like yeah, maybe that'll convince yeah. me. I'll try one more time. I'll try your mom. So, so, Sam, what I'm hearing is that your mom's going to cook for us. And- right. right. <laughs> Let me not let her listen to this episode. <laughs> so, Sam, I actually make Ruth Chris sweet potato casserole. Have you ever had that? I make a version of that. No. It is it's delicious. I Ooh. will make you some. It is so Please buttery, do. <laughs> so much brown sugar. That's the best. So it's that's, perfect for what you're yes. describing. <laughs> that's the best. Yes. Uh, that sounds amazing. So for me, my and I feel like this might be a little controversial. But cranberry, like jellied cranberry situate like that, I just, I don't agree with it. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I support you in that too. Thank you. Thank you. Are we talking about like the canned? Yes. Canned yes. Are we talking about like homemade cranberries? No, no. I love and will absolutely do the homemade cranberry sauce. That is how I eat cranberry sauce. Like the homemade, Mm -hmm. like you get the cranberries, you like boil them and you do all of the delicious things. Yes. The canned stuff where you like, like the sound that it makes when it's plopping onto a plate and then you're like slicing it. Like I I can't do it. And so I don't. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Mine mine is, I can't stand homemade cranberry sauce. Oh, so we're in direct opposition. Don't like it. Don't like cranberry rivals. Yep. We're (laughs) out here. (laughs) Not do holiday dinner together. It's going to get heated right here. (laughs) So is that your, that's yours, Tracy, is the homemade cranberry sauce? Oh, but it's so. Oh, it's so funny to me how everything uh, holiday can be so personalized, right? Like, and it, and it, can really evoke some like strong feelings because it's, you know, if you think of home or you think of family or you think of friends or you think of whatever it is that the holidays like bring up into your mind. And yeah, it can be such an individual taste and with everything, right? The down to the traditions and the decorations and the food. So yeah, it's always fun to think about. <laughs> I think that that kind of perfectly segues into our conversation today, too. Absolutely. Because we're talking about the holidays and rural communities and safety planning. And the holidays are traditionally a time when a lot of us do feel safe and we do feel comfortable. It's a time of joy and being around family and close friends and things like that. But for a lot of other folks and survivors, it's not a time to be safe. It's a time where there are a lot of considerations that have to be made and plans that have to be put in place to ensure that they can have some joy in the holidays and can have some safety for themselves and children involved too. And so I also think there are a lot of misconceptions about what safety planning is and can be. And Mackenzie, Tracy, Samantha, if any of you want to jump in here too, I think there are a lot of basic safety planning pieces that go into place. And a lot of people assume when you're safety planning, it means someone has left a violent or abusive relationship. And that's not the case. You know, safety planning is, it's ongoing. It is focused on what the survivor says they need for safety. And it is, it's not when someone is leaving a relationship. And super individualized too. Yeah. I think that's the number one thing that, that a lot of our advocates do. The majority of the clients we work with are non-residential, are not here in our shelter. And everything is around safety planning and how do they anticipate harmful situations. They know their situation in their life best. And how do we help them um, just have a conversation about what they could do to stay safe in that, what they can do to prepare for that, whether that is having a safe word with somebody who they can trust in their family, right? And say, hey, marshmallows, whatever that might be. And just means I need you to just take me out for a couple of minutes, whatever that might look like. It might be, how do I have a a bug out plan? It might be as elaborate as that. If things get really uncomfortable or really unsafe, having things together in order so that I can just grab a bag and go and and get someplace safe. So there's lots of different ways to safety plan. And it's really about having a simple conversation. It's not simple, makes it sound easy. And that's, it's not easy when you're thinking about unsafe situations and really how hard it is to talk about these things, especially during the holidays when we want to be having fun and we want to have this idyllic time that our kids are going to remember and have fun with. And so it can be really hard to anticipate the stuff. And it could be one of the ways that people can make a little more room for joy if they've already got some plans in place. So it can be a great prevention opportunity. Yeah, Mackenzie, I think you touched on this a little bit when we were talking before, just something that you said that safety planning is ongoing, but it's also harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And so it's increasing that that sense of safety for survivors and, and their children. 
Right. And we can't stop someone else's behavior. We can't prepare for everything. And we can do our best to have a plan in place for the things that we're pretty sure could come up during these times. So really it is harm reduction in the sense of how do I have the least amount of stress in in the situation that I already know is going to be stressful. So it doesn't always stop things from happening and it can really have a chance of reducing it. Yeah. I mean, ideally, we would want every survivor to live a life without abuse, but we understand that we need some careful planning because we know that leaving, absolutely, it could be the worst and most dangerous time for a survivor. And that safety plan may not be a permanent escape plan. It might be a, how do I leave for right now plan or how do I plan for in the future plan? Yeah. Or how do I stay as safe as I can while I'm still in this relationship? That's something I think of often um, for survivors, because a lot of the times that means, you know, sort of placating almost to make sure that they are safe. And I, I imagine in rural communities that there are some unique challenges too. And so when y'all think of safety planning, what does that mean for survivors and those that are in your community during the holidays? Are there any things that come up for y'all around that? I think the hardest thing is that we don't have a lot of resource, external resources. So it really means that someone has to rely on their own personal skill set or their own immediate circumstances. We don't have a lot of things that are open late at night. So let's say I need an excuse to just get out of the house because things are escalating and I want to remove myself. So I need it. I need to go to the grocery store. Well, not all grocery stores are open 24 seven out here, different things like that. As far as location too, we have a lot of homes that are very far out into the country and don't have, I I have three neighbors that I could probably walk to and the rest are a little bit farther away. So we're not in an urban setting where you've got neighbors all around, or if I run outside my door and go knock on somebody else's right away. So those are, are a couple of things that immediately come up for what, how do we stay connected, especially during the holidays when it can be so isolating. Kids are out of school, there's no childcare, a time when everybody's seemingly connected. If you don't have safe connections, it can be really isolating. And we also have a desperate lack of transportation. We do not have public transit here. We do have Uber. We do recently, I found out, have one ride share service that has been offering rides to airports and things like that for general population. But we do not typically have good transportation. So it's even hard for when people are just calling our hotline and want to get here to get shelter. They don't have transportation. How do we make that work? So if you're wanting to leave emergency in, say, the middle of the night, are you going to walk and risk, you know? There's no sidewalks in our towns. I mean, walking is super unsafe because there's hardly any sidewalks or streetlights. It is. And where I was going with that was, you know, we have a lot of people who do walk around here because there is not public transit. And then so there's a lot of pedestrians that are possibly risking their lives of losing it if someone cannot see in the middle of the night because there's not lighting. It is so rural. So and I'm sure that produces unique challenges too because you know if they know how dangerous it is, that means that their perpetrator also knows how dangerous it is for them to leave in the middle of the night or at any given time with that lack of transportation there. And then in something else that came to mind that I think we've also talked about before was, you know, being in a smaller community like that, how safe do you feel reaching out to other people, even within a program or your program, 
with that lack of anonymity, you know, that whole, that small town, like everybody knows everybody sort of thing. And does that make people hesitant to even want to call for help because of, you know, there's a lot of stigma around it with shame, or also this person probably knows their abusive partner too, or their family and things like that. Yeah, that's very much a reality. Not not just at the holidays, but year round. That's that's a very big barrier that we have. And one of the things I like to share when I'm out in the community talking to people um, is that you can call the hotline and be anonymous because it at least offers a chance for them to reach out to an advocate without that fear because they don't know who works here, but they might know somebody who works in law enforcement and our town as much as it's growing. So these dynamics may change over the next decade. But very much right now, so many people know somebody somewhere and they're all connected and a lot of them are related or they grew up together. And it's it's 100% a, a huge barrier for people. It, it is a barrier for people. And Mackenzie and I were just talking about the other day about how social media has played a part in that. Now you can post as an anonymous member in some groups. And if you're in a mom's group and you are having difficulty with your relationship and someone says, well, please reach out to the crisis center, you know, at least they know that we are here and we do want to help and they can call anonymously and get some support and services. That's such a good tip, calling anonymous or posting anonymous, because it it can kind of mitigate at least one of those barriers, right? The hesitant part to reach out because, well, what if they know who I am or they know my partner or, you know. And then something else that you were saying, Mackenzie, well, both of y'all have kind of mentioned that the population is just really growing. And it sort of makes me think a lot of times, um, because, you know, I've lived in some smaller areas before and in big cities as well. And like one of the things that can happen is the population is growing at a much faster rate than like the infrastructure and the systems and resources are growing within a particular community. And so I'm curious if that's the case in y'all's area, because then that creates its own host of issues. Because like you were mentioning about like folks, like a lack of transportation. And just when you think about this is going to, I'm going to nerd out for a second here. But when you think about like the socio-ecological model, and you Mm -hmm. think about all these systems that influence and impact a person and the way that they engage with their world, something as simple as like a city or town's infrastructure can severely impact something like accessing domestic violence resources, right? Like, are there, is there transportation? Are there sidewalks and lights and things to make a safe path if they have to walk? Like, yeah, like, are there neighbors close by? All of those things, like just the even physical layout of the town or, you know, the population is increasing, but we don't have enough housing or we don't have enough access to food items or whatever it is, or or childcare. You know, there's long wait lists for childcare. All of those things influence how survivors kind of have to navigate their their lives and within their own community. So I'm curious if that's something y'all have seen in your area. Oh, 100, 125,000%. Mm-hmm. So that's even a number. Yes. And that creates so much other stress on our community and in people's relationships because I just when you're talking about transportation and the infrastructure, there's one main road that goes through Denison. They get from one side to the other and now everybody has to go on that road to get on the highway. So it's just the traffic, the traffic accidents, construction is enough to drive anybody mad right now. But then housing prices, right? Because it's a popular area for people to move to, rents have gone up because they can. 
there's, I know there's a lot of conversation around how do we create affordable housing or keep things affordable, but people are getting priced out of their houses. So it's creating a huge homeless issue in our area, which not that it wasn't there before, but all of those resources are getting stretched really thin. Food pantries are getting stretched really thin. Our resources are getting stretched really thin because like you were saying, all of this compounds already stressful dynamics in different people's relationships. And then you got food costs rising and then you add on top of that the holidays. And so, yeah, it. I think those are a lot of pieces that people don't always take into consideration. And when you're talking about safety planning, those are all pieces too that need to be taken into consideration as far as how do we navigate our community in a safe way with all of these things happening and changing so quick. I mean, the the biggest thing McKinsey is talking there that just comes to my mind when you talk about housing is that my mortgage is half the price of rent in some of these places in just an apartment or a house. And that's really difficult for a lot of survivors because it is cheaper for them to stay at home with their children than to send them to daycare on top of the daycare waiting list is so long. So they're at home all day and they may not have access to a phone or internet or a laptop to be able to utilize some resources. And then their car is being used by the person who's working. So that's a barrier in itself. There's just a lot there, a lot of barriers that we're trying to overcome. And how do you sift through those one by one, but also to make sure that everyone is safe. And also like the flip side of that, like from a strengths perspective, I mean, we know this to be true, that survivors are incredibly resourceful and incredibly creative. Yeah. And so they, I mean, they're without our help, right? Without any advocates help or programs help, they are navigating this on, on their own a lot of times. And they're finding the ways that make sense in their family to stay safe. Safe with the resources that they do have access to. And so what an amazing opportunity for us to, one, learn from survivors and learn what works for them and be able to maybe pass that knowledge on to other survivors that we encounter, but also to be able to provide additional perspective and additional resources to bolster what they're already doing. And I think maybe we alluded to it earlier in the conversation about some misconceptions about safety planning and that maybe it's an advocate coming in saying, well, we're going to safety plan and that means you need to do this and you need to leave and you need to do this and you're going to, you know, kind of dictate to somebody what they need to do. And that's not the case at all, right? It's it's taking into account what's already working for them and then kind of finding those points where you can kind of offer additional perspective or additional resources. Would you say that that's kind of how y'all operate during a safety planning. Um, oh, absolutely. Our advocates are trained that our center is empowerment-based. Our victims make their choices. They make the best decisions for themselves. And then we do give them lots of resources if they don't know about something or need another resource. Or, you know, sometimes there are new resources that become available that they didn't possibly know about before and they may have reached out for help. Those are always beneficial. And I think that empowerment-based model is is such a, an important thing because like you were saying, Sam, they already have an incredible strength and intelligence and 
protectiveness for their family and their own lives, even if it doesn't make sense from an outside perspective, because everybody thinks, oh, if you don't like it, just go. And it's not that simple, right? We understand that in this work, but not everybody in the community does. And when we give them that option and say, we trust you, you know your life better than we do. You know your strengths, you know your situation. How do we support you and give them that choice and that validation? That's huge. That's so empowering and that's so important to recognize their strength and what they already have inside of them and to remember that about themselves and reconnect them to that. They are strong. They are incredible people, which is why we call them survivors, right? To be able to navigate this and be seeking help. And so I think that's such an important piece to recognize and and use if someone's trying to help someone that they know that's in a difficult situation is to remind them, like, I'm, I'm here to support you. Like, you know yourself better in your situation and your perpetrator better than I do. Who am I to tell you what to do? Like you, you've got this, I'm here to support you and maybe give you new ideas or different ideas than what you had before. So yeah, that's, that's an incredible piece to, to remember and to remind them of too, when this is a hard situation to navigate. And Mackenzie, I'll go back to something you said before too, when you said survivors are badass. Yeah, I didn't know if I could swear, but yes, they're badass, right? And and just leaning on their strength and supporting that, like how do we lean into that badassness of them as another pillar? You know, I think of like when you have a wall and it's got that support strength in it to help reinforce it. Like that's our job is to help reinforce what they already have. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that y'all take that approach. And, you know, I know a lot of programs do and most do. <laughs> and that's great. Oh, I'm curious too, because, you know, we talk about resources and and how it's, you know, with the population growing so much and resources aren't able to keep up within y'all's own organization. I know that y'all are probably strained as well, especially during the holidays. How are y'all, are y'all able to balance that out? Because, you know, it feels like more survivors are reaching out during the holidays, but do we really feel like that's because we're all stressed ourselves um, or we have less advocates that are able to help folks at that time because lots of folks are off for the holidays and being with their own families and things like that. How does that impact y'all? I think it all, the holidays always feel really overwhelming because there's so much. I know we have a lot of, calls that come in that aren't necessarily for us. People are just looking for Christmas help. They're looking for their homeless or different things like that. So we do our best to connect them to community partners and to help with that. And yes, it's our own stress of personal lives too, that we have to navigate and and to work through that are, have their own stress, right? Because we're all part of that. Everything's more expensive and we're trying to do the whole thing. So the other piece to that though, is that it, it feels really chaotic and we've gotten better at using other community partners too. So instead of having a bunch of people donate gifts to us and then doing a whole Christmas store, there's a community partner literally in the parking lot next door that does the exact same thing. So we give them gifts that we can't use and have our survivors go over there and use their resources. Not only does that take some of the strain off of us, but that connects our survivors to another community resource as well. So it's connecting them where we can't be the only resource that they have. They need a community to support them. So that's big. The other piece is when we kind of mentioned this earlier, I did a little digging into our own numbers because I was curious, do the numbers change during the holidays? And the reality is they do. So what I found for our shelter numbers in particular, for people that we provided shelter to last year in September, we had 56 people 
October, we had 46. November, we had 29. And in December, we had 32. But then in January, it goes back up to 54. So I thought that was really curious. And I know that there's a lot of other numbers that kind of support this idea that even though it feels really overwhelming, numbers don't show that. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Maybe people need to stay or want to stay during the holidays. We're trying to come into a shelter at Christmas time is not Mm -hmm. ideal for anyone. Yeah, they want to be with their families or give their kids that good holiday experience or try to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of safety planning right there too. Like we have to take into consideration our families and our the whole picture and not, you know, this is one of the badass pieces of survivors is they put themselves in those positions in order to offer something better for their kids, right? The things that we do for our kids is incredible. And so there's a huge strength in that and helping people understand that mentality. There might not be as much access to leave because kids are at home. Perpetrators might be at home for the holiday. Family traveling in or traveling yourselves. Yes, exactly. So I think there's a lot of reasons why that happens. And then people reach out for resources after the holidays. It's kind of like we can take a deeper breath and, you know, now we can take care of some of this other stuff that needs to be taken care of. And that we're through. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really an interesting thing to take a look at our own situation. And I know from last year to this year, we're trending very much in, in a way that we've got, we are at a 23% increase from 22 to 23 already in shelter needs. 77% increase in new clients or first-time clients. So that's huge. That and then uh, I think it's 166% increase in hotline calls and just people reaching out to us looking for help and looking for support. So even though we're going to have a little bit of a dip or we anticipate that for us and in a, in a rural community, that still leaves us beyond our capacity, right? So I think that's a strain for a lot of rural communities is that there is, and especially with our community growing, it might be less, but we're still full and pushed beyond some of our limits. Yeah. And as, as advocates working in the communities too, I feel like this has to put such a, you know, a strain on advocates too, for not feeling like we're able to offer enough help or support, or we, we there's only so much we can do. Is there any way for advocates you think to build their own resiliency or their own well-being, take care of their wellness during the holidays when there's only so much and so many resources? There's lots of ways. Will we? That's that's the real question. (laughs) There's lots of things we can do. And I think that's just part of the the heart of an advocate, right? Is that we take care of others before ourselves. And and I wish we would listen to that more, uh, taking those breaks. I know at our our center in particular, our director is very big on how do we support self-care as an agency? And um, we've had lots of different activities and brought in yoga. Currently, we have a, a chair massage every couple of weeks and staff can sign up for that. And just even if it's a 20-minute break to not be thinking about clients and you get a nice back massage out of it, that's huge. But there's only so much we can do as an agency before it becomes like we have to take care of ourselves and, and we can offer that and support that. And and it's hard, right? Because we go from a job where we're working with others to our families that we're working with others. And and I think everybody needs to remember that element of self-care and how do we stop and take a breath, whether it's we just look outside and appreciate the sunshine and Mm -hmm. feel it on our skin and do the, the five senses. You know, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel and smell and taste? And just connect, taking a couple of minutes to connect can make a huge difference for for everyone. I love that. That's really yes, true. there's also a flip side to that, though, because we are so passionate about educating the community that those ideas never stop. Yeah. Our lists are consistently growing. We're always looking for new places to go. 
We're always looking for new agencies to give education to, whether it's just one person or a thousand people. And then if we're at the center, you know, the door never stops or the phone never stops. So if you are passionate, which we are in our jobs, we always put ourselves last and we want to put others first and make sure that everyone else is safe and has what they need. So that is kind of a twofold question. Do we take care of ourselves? We would love to. And yes, those 20 minutes would be nice to get outside and walk, but we also have that burning passion to help the community. So yeah. And I think it goes back to the what do they tell you? Like the your oxygen mask, right? Like on the airplane, you know, yeah. you gotta put your oxygen mask yeah. on to give to others. And also that feels like impossible advice sometimes, right? Like when you're in it and you're there, because I've I've done direct service before. And you know, there's there's those things, those time-sensitive things where it's in your face, it's happening right now, and it and it is a matter of like true safety or not, right? Like it is very important and it's very critical crisis moment. Yeah. You can't just be like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, step away for a minute, but balancing with that and allowing yourself the time when you can, right? Like embracing it and letting, letting ourselves rest and recuperate in the moments where we can. And also I think when you think of like the long game, I love what y'all said about the community partnerships y'all are exploring because I think in the long run, although community partnerships require or can require a big investment up front, and there is work that take it takes to maintain those partnerships and relationships, I think in the long run, those sorts of community partnerships really help balance the workload from y'all's agency being the only, you know, like the main organization or the only organization that can provide support to survivors, right? Like you're really kind of trying to branch that out and spread, spread the love, right? <laughs> spread that out a little throughout the whole community, because really the less siloed we are in this work and the more we make it a community issue, the more community accountability there is, the more community support there is, the more it becomes a community issue, then the more support everybody feels. Advocates will feel that. Survivors will feel that. People who are using violence and power and control will feel that. The children in those homes will feel that. And so I love, love, love talking about community partnerships because I think that ultimately when you can spread that out a little bit more, everybody can kind of breathe a little easier. Oh, absolutely. We have some amazing community partnerships. And over this last year, we actually implemented having a speaker or two from different agencies in our community come to speak to our direct service team and talk to them a little bit about what they do, what services they provide, if they have any new services they can provide. And that hour is really critical because our team can ask them questions and get pamphlets for our clients. And then we can go and reciprocate the same. Actually, Mackenzie and I did just a month or two ago with an agency. And those community partnerships are very critical, Sam. And we have some amazing community partners that we can just call or text or get on the rapid response app and ask them for whatever we need. I feel like, cause I, I follow y'all on social media, of course, and, and meeting y'all in person and seeing the community too. Like, I feel like y'all are always out in the community. Like Grayson County Crisis Center is always doing something within the community to raise that awareness, to build those community partnerships and to just establish those connections. And it's, I mean, it's pretty, honestly, pretty impressive that y'all are able to have that relationship. Thank you very much. 
We love it. And <laughs> we something, love it. something that makes me think of too is, you know, when you talk about this kind of gathering, right, to be able to learn about all the different community resources that are out there, that makes me think of something that might be useful information for the audience uh, and maybe like another misconception about safety planning. So I think safety planning, we often talk about or people interpret it to mean like physical safety, right? And you're planning for your physical safety. But when y'all are out here looking at all these community partnerships and talking to folks about what resources they have available, that's not just for physical safety. Because like we mentioned earlier, and I say a lot is like survivors are not one dimensional, right? Like no person is, right? Everybody interacts with so many different systems and can always benefit from support in a lot of different areas. And so safety planning can include more than just resources and support for physical safety. So what kind of other safety planning can people consider? Like maybe like financial safety or emotional safety, are those some things that y'all can kind of shed a little bit of light on? Sure. So there's also the education around gathering personal documents. You may need your medical records or school records, previous police reports, may need to stash a spare key because you never know if you're going to need that. A lot of survivors have gotten really good financially about hiding money or hiding a pay-as-you-go card, a cash card, or even track phone with minutes on it. You know, a lot of survivors can have a small bag packed and ready to go just in case, have access to where do they get their pets medication, or can they take their pets with them? They know all of the places for that. So there's a lot of different resources that are available as far as if I don't have diapers, where can I get diapers in in the middle of the night? We have a resource for that. So it definitely is more than just physical safety. It's everything you need to still keep going in that moment. I think too, I know some survivors keep, um, will keep additional phone numbers saved in their phones too, under different names for different, for different places to reach out to, whether it's a crisis center or it's a hotline or a text line or things like that. So they can get that support in the moment. And Mackenzie, I think you touched on that a little bit too before, just about that emotional well-being piece. Yeah. And I think that a text, I, think, I love that a lot of hotlines are doing that. We haven't quite gotten that fancy in advance in our technology to be able to do that with our hotline just yet. But there are several hotlines, Love is Respect has a texting option. The National Domestic Violence Center has an option to text. And I think that's such a great opportunity to just really briefly connect like, hey, I'm going to the bathroom. And I mean, I'd like to say when you go to the bathroom and take too long, nobody bothers you. But as a mom of small kids, that's not true at all. Right, just invites them. But if you can find any reason to just step out because we're you're having your own mental stress, and just to stop and connect and text, whether it's a hotline, whether it's a safe friend or family member, you know, I think those mental health checks are really important, especially around all of the different kinds of stress that come with the holidays, and just keeping us balanced so that we can keep moving forward with some of the other things like the documents and, and the more tangible pieces of, of safety planning. But having that mental connection and mental grounding opportunity is essential for safety planning so that we can stay present in the moment to accomplish some of these other goals. Yeah. And I think too, you know, you don't have to, I think a lot of people have this misconception that you have to give all this identifying information or go into all of your, your history and like kind of prove your survivorship. And that's, you know, not the case. A lot of times you can either call in or chat in or text into these hotlines and it can be as simple as I need some grounding exercises, please. I'm struggling. And they will, they will do that and work you through 
through those. Yeah. And never ask your name. Or yeah, if, you, exactly. if they do ask your name, just in case you get disconnected, you don't have to provide it. So there's still that safety and anonymity for it as well. And for some people, like we were talking about before being a small town, they might not want to contact us, but they feel safe contacting a national hotline in a place where even if they did give their name, they're more than likely going to be anonymous for the most part. There's also the key piece that a lot of people think that they just need to reach out to us if they have been physically or sexually assaulted. And that is Mm -hmm. not the case. There are many different forms of abuse. Please reach out to us or any other agency if anything is occurring and see how we can help and provide resources. Yeah. And we have a, we have a few minutes left, but I was, a question came to my mind a little bit before, and I know that y'all, y'all have the BIT program. And I was just wondering, is there anything specific y'all do with the BIT participants to kind of prepare them for the more stressful times and the holidays and when things are, are going to elevate in their homes too? We actually do. So I've trained my facilitator over the years to talk previously before the holidays get here, start weeks in advance. So we are starting now those conversations of take a minute and think about things that you are thankful for and you are grateful for currently in your life. And that may be something as simple as I currently have some sort of freedom. So we know that with batters, they're usually on probation, parole, or CPS has referred them. So they don't feel that sense of I am free, but they have some sort of freedom because they're not locked up or incarcerated. So it might be as something as simple as that. It might be that they have employment to be thankful and grateful for employment and that they have the men who are in the group supporting them. So our guys have an opportunity to voice their frustrations or their concerns while learning how not to be abusive. And they're able to connect with each other and get that support during the holidays. So we do start talking about that. We also speak a lot about how drugs and alcohol are huge triggers during the holidays. And those are things as part of their sobriety and recovery to stay away from. You need to find a support group for NAAA, or you need to check in with a counselor or a therapist because we are not licensed to provide that. So yes, we actually talk to them in great detail over Thanksgiving, Christmas, July 4th. So not not just the big holidays, but we try to hit the little key pieces too. And then any other times where they're really struggling. Yeah, no, that's that's good to know. And I assumed that that happened, but I actually had never talked to anyone about it before. So I wasn't sure how perpetrators of violence might have been sort of prepared to handle those times too. And don't know that a lot of folks know this either, but perpetrators can also reach out to like the National Domestic Violence Hotline if they're struggling in the moment to get a little extra support in those times too. Yes. And the, the blessing about being on Zoom, so all of our classes are currently on Zoom and have been for the last several years. The blessing for that is we do not close for holidays unless the day falls on it. So Thanksgiving week, we will be having groups and Christmas, we will not have group because Christmas, I believe, falls on a Monday. So we will not be having group then, but we will have group the rest of the time. So you can log in anywhere as long as you are in a private space and it's confidential and you don't have anyone around you. So they'll get that extra support and extra education during the holidays. I love that. And I think one thing I kind of, I would like to highlight is that a lot of folks maybe have this idea that 
BIP is something that you have to be like court ordered to, or you have to, you know, like have it as terms of probation or something, but it can be a voluntary program as well. Like you can go and so if you are identifying that, you know what, I, I'm, I'm seeing that I have these, these patterns of behaviors that they don't feel good. They don't feel safe. They are scary for everybody in the home. You know, there are resources out there like a BIP program that can really help support, especially during those times, right? Where you might need that support. I love that you guys are open on holiday weeks because yeah, those those things, real life doesn't stop, right? And so I love that y'all are there as a support. And also I've I've worked with some bit programs in in the past. And something that I just think is interesting is just like children are a really strong motivator for survivors. Children are also a really strong motivator for for folks who are using violence in their relationship. And a lot of times I think when prompted about like to think about their childhood and what they wish they could have differently maybe, or, you know, that piece of hope and attached to how they want their children to feel in their home is also really important during the holidays to, to help remind folks of this is the goal. The goal is to help create an atmosphere in your home where your children are not afraid of you and where your children, you know, are excited to be together with the family and to feel safe and to feel loved and secure. And so I, I, I love that y'all are offering that support as well during the holidays because, you know, everybody in the family deserves to feel supported. So it's involved in prevention work too you know, because it's it's not just focused on young kids in school. It's it's throughout lifetimes and ages. Yeah. Well, and I, a lot of people question when I'm out in the community, why would we work with the perpetrators? And it doesn't make any sense. You're there to serve the people who need you. They need us too. And it's twofold, right? Number one, um, a lot of perpetrators, most perpetrators were victims of some sort of violence as well. So we are still working with victims in a different capacity. This is that cycle all around. Two, it's not on the victims to end it. It's on the perpetrators to end it. So having this opportunity to support ending violence through the holidays with the perpetrators is really critical to our mission of ending violence in, in our area. So we love that we're a part of, of all of the cycle and comprehensive approach to ending it. Thank you so much for sharing that and being open with us and having this conversation we're getting to the last couple minutes now. So we usually like to end with a question that's sort of more leading towards hopes and dreams and things like that. And one of the questions I had was if someone was wanting to know how to support a friend or a family member that was in an abusive relationship or an unsafe relationship, what are some big takeaways that we could offer them or you could offer them in ways to be that supportive person? I think the, the first piece is to see them and hear them and validate them and really support comes. We talked about it before in, in seeing that strength and that resilience. It's hard to ask for help, especially if you've been in a harmful relationship and had that emotional violence that takes a toll on your self-worth. And that's big. And so to be able to reach out and ask and say, hey, I don't think this is good for me. Or even if you see it through the holidays, if you're with a family or a friend and you see some unhealthy dynamics to go to them and to to just validate them and see that strength and see who they are and say, how can I support you? And maybe have some of the, the resources that are available through this podcast or that we've talked about to connect them with and do it with them. I tell people all the time in the community, if you know someone who you think might benefit from a hotline call, say, I'll sit here with you and, and do this with you. They're more likely to be able to reach out if they have that support with them. It's a little less scary for them in the moment, I think. For sure. And I love that piece you said too about just asking how, how can I support you? 
how can I do this? Um, because that puts it again back and it empowers the survivor to make those choices on what they want to do and how much involvement they want to have or you know where they're at. Yeah, holidays are so stressful for everyone. And just letting someone know that you are there for them. Because sometimes when you ask, well, what do you need from me? They have no idea what to say. Exactly. But just knowing that they do have that person if they wanted it can be really lead to a lot of strength. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the same thing with the skeleton crew staff that we run sometimes during the holidays, you know, as a supervisor, I'll go to McKenzie or Ashley and say, you know, how are you doing? What do you need from me? Or what, what days do you need to submit for PTO to take time off for you and your family and just make sure that they're okay as well. I love that y'all check in on each other too. It's, it's really important, especially in this field. It's true. She really does that. She's not just saying it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. That's kind of support you you want and need, right? Yeah. So that's great. And again, thank you both, Mackenzie and Tracy, for coming here today and and sharing all your insight with us. And I know that this will be really useful information for folks out there. And I think there were a couple of good reminders in there as well. So we may have a couple of resources that we can link in the episode description. So keep an eye out for those. And then we hope that everybody has a safe and happy holiday season. And we will back up next month. Thanks, you all. Thank you so much for having us. Enjoy the season, everyone. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Stay safe, y'all. 